Good morning. If you could turn with me into our Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's customary that as I turn there myself, I fill the time by talking about something not totally unrelated. Uh, Pastor Tim would tell you if you ask him that I'm doing him the favor this morning by uh, exhorting from the Word, but in reality, I think he's doing me the favor. If there is ever a passage that a young person studying to join the ministry would want to preach out of, it would be Nehemiah chapter 8. Reason being, it's just so straightforward. It's, it's, a, it's, it's just so straightforward, and, and the beautiful simplicity of what it's showing us. So really, it, my exhortation is, it's pretty much a one-point sermon and that we rejoice in the Word. We rejoice in the truth. But beyond that, beside the simplicity of the passage, it is also abundantly deep, profoundly deep. It is an ocean in which we could swim in for a long time. Anything from the doctrine of the Word itself to the doctrine of worship to Old Testament festivals, it's something we could get lost and play in for a long time. So, yes, I think the favor is all mine. But that simplicity of the story uh, sometimes can be misconstrued. A lot of times when I've heard this passage preached, the application goes something like this, because, and I'm jumping ahead in the story, but follow me, it's important. Because Ezra preached and people responded, therefore, we have the obligation to also preach and respond to the Word. It's a pretty one-for-one application. Uh, It's not wrong, but it misses the bigger picture. Uh, Nehemiah is a story. I hope you've caught on to that by now. Nehemiah is a story. And whenever you rip a story out of context and try to make a one-for-one point, you, you're going to miss something. For example, if I were to tell you the story of a man who became obsessed with putting shoes onto women's feet, you would be grossed out, and it, it's creepy. But then I tell you his name's Prince Charming. Oh, that, that changes it. And he's searching for Cinderella, the one lady that came down the stairs, dropped the glass slipper, and now he's searching for her. So that story between the difference between a man obsessed with a shoe and putting it on women's feet and the difference between Prince Charming looking for the lady that has captivated his heart is totally different. So before we get into the story in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to take a background tour of what's going on so we can anticipate and appreciate the fullness of everything going on in this chapter. Before we do that, uh, if you would please join me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm in desperate need of your grace in every moment, but especially so now. May through my weakness, may your word be preached faithfully. May our ears hear your truth. May our hearts respond with joy. May we do all things unto your glory as we feast upon your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the background story is really important here, because at this point in the story, if you've been following us at all uh, here at St. Stephen, you know that the wall has just been recently finished. Nehemiah accomplished what he set out to do, the wall is built. Uh, But that's just one part of the bigger story. In fact, we could really go as far back as King Solomon, who built uh, the temple. 
And as he built the temple, he had this long, lengthy prayer about how God would respond in covenant faithfulness to those who would turn to the temple. And it was a wonderful time, wonderful occasion, but the Israelites, the Jewish people, uh, did not live in covenant faithfulness. God, who dwelt in their midst, sent prophets warning them over and over again, repent, turn back to me, repent, turn back to me. And over and over again, they've said no. So we know how the story goes, that the northern nation is sent away into exile, and then after a while, the southern nation is sent into exile. And while they are there, they hear the prophets of God again. But this time, the message is different. He says, I will bring you back. I will bring you back. I will restore you. That sounds pretty good. And they were patient. They waited, and God eventually fulfilled that promise. He brought them back. And that's where Second Chronicles, at the end of Second Chronicles and beginning of Ezra, uh, that's where that story takes place. Artaxerxes, Art, I can say that, Artaxerxes commissions Ezra to go forward and aid in the uh, Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple. And as we know, uh, the temple does get rebuilt. However, there was significant disappointment surrounding that scenario. The temple is rebuilt. It's a lot smaller than before. The people are sad and weeping over the difference in size. But one thing is even more distressing. When God had previously uh, ordained the people to build him a home, he would fill it with his presence. Visibly, a manifestation of God's presence would fill the temple. In this instance, in Ezra, that does not occur. Why is that important for Nehemiah chapter 8? Well, this Nehemiah chapter 8 begins with a people waiting with eager expectation. They were told over and over again, be patient. I will restore you. I will bring you back. You will be my people. The promises of the prophets were that things would be even greater and more magnified in, uh, in this next period of history. So here they are waiting as the temple's rebuilt, and it's kind of a, a disappointment. So they don't give up. Nehemiah, as we've read, is then sent. He's commissioned to aid in the rebuilding of the walls. So this eager anticipation, this eager waiting for the fulfillment of all the promises and the restoration of God's people, it's all there. And that's where we find these people. They are an eager anticipation of God's promises being fulfilled in their lifetime. That's the background of the story here. And it makes a lot more sense to have all that in our minds as we begin reading. We're actually going to begin in verse 73 of chapter 7. And we read, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So I said that this is a period of eager anticipation, eager waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God. They had just finished the wall. In our, in our modern minds, we think maybe this is the time to commission the wall, you break the champagne bottle over the wall, however they would do it in our modern context. That's not what they do. Instead, in the beginning of the seventh month, they want to hear the law. They want to hear the law preached. 
And to add to that uh, level of eagerness and anticipation, it, the, the text explicitly mentions what month we're in, right? the seventh month. In fact, it says that Ezra brought the law out on the first day of the month. Uh, the seventh month uh, is kind of like a holiday season for the Jewish people. Uh, the best example I guess I could give to, to help us relate would be right after Thanksgiving, what happens on the radio? Christmas music starts playing. And for those of us who are not so keen on Christmas music, we start grumbling and complaining. But then for those like my young daughter, Adelaide, she is, words cannot express her joy. It's the second the holiday season comes around. So there's all, the holiday season is full of eagerness and anticipation. And that's very much what the, the seventh month is like for the Jewish people. In fact, the first day of the month in Leviticus 23 is Uh, God ordains it to be the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the text doesn't say that they celebrate the uh, the Feast of Trumpets. It's very possible that the the Israelite people, the exiles that had come back, aren't aware of the holiday, the Feast of Trumpets. But we have good reason to suspect that Ezra, uh, a Levitic priest and scribe, did know about it. So I imagine in Ezra's shoes, he'd be super excited, to say the least, to preach the word on the day of the Feast of Trumpets. So again, I hope you see all this eager anticipation is building. The temple's finished, the wall is finished, it's this seventh month, it's like this holiday season, and now we want to hear the word preached. I also want to make a quick note. Uh, At the end of verse 2, It says, Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. That's important. I'm only making a note of it right now, so if you have mental sticky notes, put that one up. Put that one up there. We will come back to it. Now, let's keep reading at verse 3. And he read from it the law, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padaiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. We see here that Ezra, something similar like this, is on a large wooden platform so he could stand above the people. It would aid in the amplification of his voice. But it also, it just, uh, it also pictures the deep reverence that the people have for the word. How do I know that? Well, we also see that not only... As he's standing above all the people, not elevating himself, but elevating the word. That, but then we see the people stand for the reading of the word. We don't do that here. I don't think the text is saying that is necessary. But the text is definitely belaboring the point. The people want to hear the word. The people revere the law of Moses. This is what they came to hear. And again, we see the text mention that all who could understand were attentive to the reading. Again, make another mental sticky note. That's important. 
Now, Ezra, as he begins to preach, he's really in his element, right? Ezra is a priest from the line of Ezra, uh, Aaron, as we read in Ezra 7. He's a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, Ezra 7 says. He has been commissioned by Artaxerxes, that we read, to rebuild the Israelite community through instructing the people on the law of Moses. This is Ezra in his element. This is what he came to do. This is what he's all about. And he preached, the text says, from early in the morning until midday. For, so like for a solid half of the day. Um, that's a long sermon. I promise not to keep you that long here. And in fact, I don't even think I could speak for that long. That is mighty impressive. According to the Pew Research Center, uh, I had to look up what is the average length of a sermon just after seeing what Ezra pulled off. The, the median length of sermons, 37 minutes. Not too bad. We could deal with that. Catholic sermons were the shortest at a median of just 14 minutes compared with the 25 minutes for sermons in mainline Protestant congregations and 39 minutes in evangelical Protestant congregations. Historically, the black Protestant churches had by far the longest sermons at a median of 54 minutes. Now, the question needs to be asked, is this text teaching that we need to preach for a very, very long time? I would say no. I don't think this has anything to do with teaching us how long a sermon might be. Ezra, I don't believe, would say that listening to Scripture is some mechanical process that transforms us. It's not about the the length of the sermon that does the changing. Rather, the emphasis is placed on understanding. Understanding, right? That's why I said put those mental sticky notes up. Over and over again, it's belaboring the point people need to understand what they hear, need to understand the Word. Now, we, uh, moving forward, we read in verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, and Jamin, Akab, Shebethai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Again, we see this emphasis on understanding the word. It is important that as we come to the word of God, we're not doing it out of empty, rote ritual. Rather, they came with reverence that we saw. They stood for the word as it's read and as we're blessed the Lord. The people say, amen, amen. They fall on their faces. There is deep reverence for the word, and there's also understanding. The Hebrew in verse 8, where it says, uh, they read clearly and gave the sense of the law. The Hebrew is a little difficult. It's a little tricky there. Uh, We're not sure if that means that they translated it. It might be that the, the exiles coming back into the, uh, the Hebrew nation, didn't understand Hebrew. They may have spoke Aramaic, so it might have needed translation. It could be that, and I'm sure we all understand, during a lengthy sermon, sometimes your mind wanders and you need someone to reiterate what just happened. It could also be that the passages are just tricky, so they need to break them into smaller portions and explain it. Either way, it's about understanding. So we come to the Word with reverence, seeking understanding. 
The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 157, asks, how is the Word of God to be read? And it answers, the Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very Word of God and that He only can enable us to understand them, with the desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them. I suppose if we were to make a point of application, I I personally, as I read the text, uh, I was convicted of how often I fail to read or listen to Scripture uh, in a manner worthy of its author and content. It's very easy for me to say, I believe this is the Word of God. I believe it's more precious than silver. I believe that it is able to equip, uh, reprove, exhort, uh, and yet often I don't treat it as the very Word of God. I read it as if it's just any other book. I read it as if it's something on my to-do list for the day. I need to read the Word. Rather than a joy, Scripture can become a burden. Such a view of God and His Word will only produce a superficial understanding of Scripture. If we are to understand Scripture properly, God's Word, we need God to enlighten and enliven our hearts to receive and respond to His Word. Now, in the next passage, starting in verse 9, we see, get a little picture of what that looks like. Starting in verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Proper reverence and understanding of the word evokes a response within us. The question is, in this passage, to weep or not to weep? Was it wrong that they they were crying when they heard the law preached? Three times they're told, stop, be quiet, calm down, right? Is Is the tone supposed to communicate that it is wrong to cry when we hear the word of God? Tears are definitely a unique human phenomenon. Uh, it's really only humans that can have an emotional response and produce tears. Uh, so is it wrong? Is it wrong that we would hear God's word preached and respond and weep? I would answer no, but we need to understand the context. It's not wrong. In fact, I would argue that it's proper for us when we hear the law of God to be convict, uh, convicted of our own sins. Romans 3 reads, now, that we, we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if I hear the law properly, it, it shuts me up. I can't look God in the face by, by the law and say, I'm righteous in your sight, Lord. I can't go before the, the Lord and say, I am without sin. In fact, 
through the law comes knowledge of sin. As I hear the law properly preached, I, my, my understanding of my own sinfulness just grows. I should be burdened by my sin as I hear the law. So tears of deep repentance are appropriate. But remember what I said earlier about the context of the story. The context of the story. This is a time of eager anticipation. We're waiting for God to fulfill His promises. God has aided us in rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, and here we come ready to hear the word preached. Further, it's the seventh month. This is supposed to be the Feast of Trumpets. That's important. I do think Ezra knew what he was doing here when he says, do not weep. We read in Numbers chapter 10, on the day of your gladness also, at your appointed feasts and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So the feast of trumpets is supposed to be joyous. It's supposed to be a time of gladness. It's supposed to be a time where we celebrate who God is and what he has done for us. That whole eagerness and anticipation, the seventh month, all of it is supposed to bring us to a point where we rejoice in God. In fact, I would say that is what they were trying to do here in this passage. They're trying to say, yes, the law convicts of sin. Yes, deep tears deep, uh, and deep repentance. But we're, they wanted them to focus on the gospel that was found in the Scriptures. Because though they were sinful and undeserving. Remember, these were the exiled people. They're the ones, they were the covenant breakers. They had no merit to deserve being brought back in the first place. The fact that they're even here, back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, that's all of God's grace. The fact that the temple's rebuilt is of God's grace. The fact that the wall is built is of God's grace. As Pastor Tim has excellently showed us chapter after chapter of Nehemiah, it's all by God's grace. Yes, the law convicts of sin. Yes, we should be repentant. But on this day, Ezra says, on this day, we rejoice in the grace of the gospel of our God. So, to weep or not to weep. Yes, we should be gripped by sin, and that's healthy and I think necessary. The Christian walk, you can compare it to you have your left foot and your right foot. Repentance is the left foot. Actually, it doesn't matter if it's right or left, but it's one of your feet, right? Repentance, it's a step of the Christian walk as we move forward. We always should be repenting, but we don't stop walking. We keep going, and that's where we rejoice. Repent over our sin. Rejoice in God's grace. Repent because the law has convicted us. Rejoice because the gospel has set us free. Repent, rejoice, repent, rejoice. And I have to add, we have far more to celebrate than Nehemiah did far more to rejoice over than Ezra did. Any of the people that were there that day, they were in eager anticipation. They were eagerly waiting for something amazing, for God to fulfill His promises. Brothers and sisters, we live on this side of the cross. The promises are fulfilled. We get to look back and see how Christ accomplished our great salvation. That glorious future that God described through all the prophets all point to Christ. And as we read the Word, we can see that more clearly than those in Nehemiah's time ever could. Yes, repent and rejoice. And in this side of the cross, we have far more to celebrate than Nehemiah or Ezra did back in that day. Now, we approach the last section of our narrative where it really uh, 
repeats a lot of the themes that we just discussed, this idea of reverence and understanding of the Word, but also uh, rejoicing in the Word. And it comes at it through a different perspective. So let's read together, starting at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast of seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So like I said, we see, again, the role of obedience and reverence, understanding the word. After this wonderful feast, they were told to do not weep, rejoice, go drink the sweetest wine, eat the fat of the land, give to everybody so that everyone can celebrate together. After that great night of celebration, the very next morning, they wake up and decide, let's keep studying the word. Wow. I don't think I would even think to do that. But it's such a wonderful thing to see that they are just so joyous over the word of God that the, houses, uh, the fathers of houses said, Ezra, show us the word. Teach us the word. And as they're going through the word, they discover there's another uh, feast that they should be celebrating this month, and that's the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths would uh, occur towards the middle of the month. So as they read that, they said, oh man, we got we to gotta prepare now. We are, we are way behind schedule, ladies and gentlemen. So they proclaimed throughout the land, guys, you got to gather the branches, the palm, the myrtle, uh, everything. Get it together because we are going to celebrate this. The eager anticipation, the eager joy, joyous response to the word, they see that there's a feast prescribed by God and they seek to fulfill it to the fullest extent of the law. And that's exactly what they try to do. They gather the materials, and as they gather, they build, and as the time comes, they rejoice. Every day they hear the word. It was a wonderful time. And we have this strange little verse here that says, ever since Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not celebrated uh, the Feast of Booths. Uh, what that passage is not saying is that no one has ever celebrated the Feast of Booths since the day of Jeshua. Uh, what it is saying, though, is that since that time, no one has celebrated it properly. How do I know that? Well, we have instances in Second Chronicles 7-9 and in Ezra 3-4 of when people had celebrated the Feast of Booths. Uh, but nowhere do we get the, even the, the, the glimpse that they celebrated the Feast of Booths with rejoicing. We read in Leviticus chapter 23, and it says, And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. Right? He's saying you shall gather the materials, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. 
rejoice. Is it strange that God commands us to rejoice? It shouldn't. Love rejoices in truth. Paul rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. Both Paul and Peter say that we are to rejoice in our suffering. Philippians 3 and 4 both say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to rejoice always. The Christian life is meant to be one of rejoicing. I said earlier that how often do I fail to come to the Word and appreciate it and to reverence it and to understand it in the manner worthy of its author and content? How often do I celebrate the Word? Very rarely. And I think we would all agree that it's easy to lose sight of the grandeur of Scripture and this grand, uh, the grandeur of truth, which is why we always need to go back and remember, we have far more to celebrate than Nehemiah did. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, and every day they came to the Word eager for more, but we have far more to celebrate than they did. We get to celebrate because of Jesus Christ. They saw him vaguely in shadows throughout the Old Testament, but we get to see him clearly proclaimed and to celebrate him every week on the Lord's Day. Celebrate the Lord's Day. This is a time of celebration. And just like the Feast of Booths, we we gather on the Lord's Day to fellowship. We gather to hear the word, which reminds us where we came from. Just like the exiles, I am no more worthy of the grace of God than they were. But as we look to the Word and the, the, to the law to remind us of our sin, we're also reminded of the gospel. The Feast of Booths, the whole point of it, God prescribed it because He wanted the Israelites to always remember their time in the wilderness. And that was a hard time. But they weren't in Egypt. <laughs> right? They need to rem- it reminds them not of what we're going through now, but also reminds them of where we came from and where we are going. That's what the Lord's Day does for us. It reminds us where I came from. I was an enemy of God, and now I'm a friend. I was a sinner, and now I'm called a saint. I was not a per- people of God, a member of the people of God, and now I'm called God's people. I was an orphan, now I'm an adopted child. I was a debtor, now I'm an heir with Christ. I was lost, now found, blind, now see, dead, now alive. We have far more to celebrate, far more, because we can see Christ. They anticipated Christ. We participate in Christ. They anticipated, we participate. In Christ. They studied the scriptures because in them they thought there was eternal life. We study the scriptures because we know it has eternal life, and we know that eternal life is found in Christ. In John 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is there they that bear witness about me. What kind of a church are we if we don't rejoice in the word? What kind of a church would we be if we didn't seek to understand the Word? What kind of a church would we be if we didn't revere the Word? I'm very thankful to be a member here at St. Stephen, to sit under the faithful preaching of great men such as Dr. Stu Sachs, happy birthday, and men like Pastor Tim, and we've had Dr. Michael Rogers up here. We've had great men teach us the Word, and I'm so thankful to be a, a member of this congregation. But we should always just like the Israelites, commit ourselves daily to revere the Word, to understand the Word, and to rejoice in the Word. 
Imagine the transformative power that could have on a church congregation, in a family, in a town, on a nation, if the people gathered seeking to revere, understand, and rejoice in the Word. My prayer is that as we as a, as a church submit ourselves to the Scriptures, as we seek to hear the law and repent, and as we seek to hear the gospel and rejoice, that that driving force will make us a place where the people of New Holland will say to one another, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to St. Stephen and rejoice. Can, I'm so thankful for this congregation, and I know God is faithful to accomplish his will in this congregation, because as Christ prays for us, Christ, who is our high priest, Christ prays for us that we would be sanctified in his truth, and his word is truth. Christ is faithful. Christ is good, and may we go forward in that understanding that in Christ, we have a lot to celebrate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray along with you and your Son that we would be sanctified according to your truth. We thank you that your word is truth, and I pray that as you convict us of its reverent worth, and that as you lead us to understand it, that we would repent of sin and rejoice. Again, we rejoice, always rejoicing. And though this life be filled with trials and suffering, we are not a people marked as those who complain, but we are marked as a people who rejoice. We thank you that you guide us into all these truths for the glory of your Son, who is faithful to do far more than all we ask or imagine. Thank you, Lord, for this and much more that we have by the gospel in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.